Hey everyone, it's Jacob here. Welcome to another episode of the Law of Code podcast. This is the show covering all things blockchain. Cryptocurrencies, NFTs, DeFi, DAOs, you name it, we're covering it. But there's one catch. We focus on the legal framework surrounding blockchains. Anything mentioned in this episode by Jacob Robinson or his guests is not legal advice or investment advice. All opinions are Jacob's and his guests alone. Nothing discussed today should be relied upon for legal or investment decisions. This show is solely for information and entertainment purposes only. Jacob and his guests are not your lawyers, nor are they investment advisors. Please work directly with a lawyer or investment professional. Hey everyone, today's guest is Jeff Costello, a lawyer and entrepreneur at Nerlin Lindsay LLP in Vancouver, Canada. Jeff's legal practice revolves around estate planning and administration with a focus on digital assets. Jeff knows his crypto, and we did a deep dive on why estate lawyers are so important for holders of crypto and NFTs. Jeff offers great insights into why estate planning should be done early and often, especially if you hold cryptocurrencies or NFTs in personal wallets. In this episode, Jeff explains some tax implications people might not be aware of when buying and selling digital assets, and what estate issues digital token holders are not considering, but should be. We also touched on how blockchain technology will shape the estate planning profession over the next five to 10 years. Jeff was a great guest, is building a -a one-of-a-kind practice, and I'm grateful he took the time to speak with me today. Jeff, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm excited to talk estate planning with you and crypto. Uh, So thanks again for joining the podcast. Hey, Jacob, how are you doing today? I'm really, really, really excited to be here. Yeah, we're happy to have you. And I think we'd start with your Genesis block. So where were you first introduced to Bitcoin, blockchain technology, and crypto in general? Sure. So, I mean, I've been thinking a lot about like when I did my first Bitcoin transaction and I, I don't I don't think there was like a, I, I was using Quadrica CX in Canada, which eventually went kaput. Um, I didn't have any assets on there at the time, but uh, so I think back and I, I'm pretty sure that I had my first Bitcoin transaction in 2016. I know that the block size wars were going on because I was following that really closely. And that was part of the intrigue that led me deeper and deeper into Bitcoin is I think I saw, you know, some of the drama leading up to uh, the fork and, uh, and, said, what is this? You know, these people have been doing this for a while. I kind of heard about block, uh, Bitcoin blockchain kind of previously, and obviously thought it was highly speculative and kind of, uh, you know, Ross described it on your last podcast really well as just kind of, it's gold bugs for a new generation, but it's not that exciting otherwise. Uh, but when the block size wars were happening, I was kind of, uh, kind of a fly on the wall on Reddit and, and Twitter and, and watching some of these arguments play out. And that was kind of, really good for getting me in, into how the technology actually works. Because if you want to understand SegWit, if you want to understand kind of what the block size wars were all about, then you need to understand how Bitcoin works. And so I remember I, th- I probably bought a couple hundred bucks and said, I'll just play around with it. And I remember, I remember like receiving it and sending it. And I actually think I was using more Litecoin at the time because it was really, it was faster and, 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 and you know, it has less security, I know, but uh at the time, it was a super exciting project. And uh, I remember sending like 100 bucks between addresses that I both own and being like mind blown about how 
efficient it was, how low cost it was. And I honestly, it was like a little bit of a light bulb went on. I was like, if this works and it's as secure as people claim it is, it's going to completely change how people think about doing transactions, how money moves around, because the barrier to entry is now zero. And so that was kind of the really exciting thing for me. And I basically bought Bitcoin and, and held it over a couple of years. Not enough because I was paying down my law school student debts and that at the time took priority, you know, so, you know, you can never have enough. But uh, uh, Wash It got a lot more interested in Ethereum probably in 2018, 2019, uh, because, I mean, people, you know, Bitcoin and, and Ethereum people will argue on Twitter, but I fundamentally think that they're two totally different projects. And although they have the same kind of genesis, they're now making totally different offerings. And I think Bitcoin is great and maybe the most you know, sound form of money uh, that's ever been created. But I also think that uh, uh, Ethereum, DeFi, um, EVM offers a way to kind of completely restructure the financial you know, landscape of the world and to cut out a lot of middlemen and to make finance more accessible to people who don't have access to markets, who don't have access to lawyers, who don't have access to kind of wealth managers. This is like a, this is a big deal. And uh, so that's really kind of what gets me excited. And, and uh, it's been fun for me to kind of start kind of playing a bit of a role in that. And that's been, been a blast. I remember when I was in my blockchain and the law course, it was around 2019 and he, the teacher was explaining, you know, how it could be immediately transferred and there was no middleman. And at the same time, I was in a cross-border sales lecture or a course. And the professor was telling us how wire transfers work with the three days and it takes so much time to complete the payment. And I was just connecting the dots that, wow, you know, this is more than just money. This is efficiency. This is time savings. This is people being able to send money back overseas to their family. The, the use cases are so numerous. Yeah. And, and the scale down is big, right? So, I mean, Bitcoin obviously has a, has a, has an issue with how it's structured in terms of like sending a $20, $10 transaction is not super economical on layer one. Lightning is a good fix to that. Lightning has its own issues. It's quite comp- It can be quite complex uh, for total newbies to pick it up. Uh, you know, they'd much rather settle a bill with PayPal or something than they would over Lightning in 99% of cases, but the technology is growing and it's there. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's what's exciting. That, that's the same kind of thing that's exciting to me is that like, oh, we can do these transactions and know that we have the money and, uh, and not have to. And you still see transactions on chain that blow traditional finance out of the water. You'll see a transaction of 60, $100 million go through. It'll clear in, you know, 10 minutes for the first block. And then it'll, within an hour, you know, it's not, it's, it's, uh, it's guaranteed. And you'll look at the fees like, oh, they paid $30 for that. It's, it's like traditional finance just cannot comprehend the scale that that can bring to the, to the, the whole financial sector. And I think most people that I talk to who aren't involved in the space think of it as fiat versus crypto, where they say, oh, well, the U.S. dollar is never going away. The Canadian dollar is never going away. And of course, it's not going away. That doesn't necessarily mean there's going to be one winner takes all. They can coexist, like you said, too, with the smaller payments, where if I'm sending my friend $5, you're paying for pizza, right? I don't want to pay for that in some crypto that might be volatile, where I'm fine paying in Canadian dollars. That doesn't mean necessarily I won't hold all my money in Bitcoin. Yeah, and and I'm not you know a Bitcoin maxi who thinks you know the maximization is where we're all just going to denominate everything in Bitcoin. It's not going to happen. And if you uh, listen to Andreas Antonopoulos, he literally says, "Don't price stuff you're selling in Bitcoin. Price it in U.S. dollars and do the transaction in Bitcoin." 
calculating your taxes, calculating sales tax, VAT, all that stuff, it has to be done on the, 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 the local currency sale value. So you don't want to do that. Now, at the same time, you do get into this world, and, and, and maybe this is kind of what we'll see in South America with, with the countries that are bringing Bitcoin on, where they price everything in the local currency, but the transaction itself is just running on Bitcoin rails. I think that's like a real, you know, that's a really interesting use case that I think will pick up where uh, it won't, Bitcoin will be a denomination that is perpetually running in the background and, and, and fueling the system. And I think Ethereum and the stable coins on there, whether that's USDC, USD Tether, you know, are or some Rye or Dai or one of these kind of competitors. Uh, you know, if we ever get a decentralized, uh, unpegged stablecoin, it'll be it'll be a wonderful world. But uh, an unbacked stablecoin. Sorry, um, I think that that is like a huge thing, and I think that that the advance of, of the the growth, and if you look at the chart in stablecoin markets over the past year, I think is one of the reasons that's really bringing institutions in because now they're talk we're talking on their terms a little bit. And they can wrap their head around it a lot easier because they're not really moving Ethereum or Bitcoin. They just see it as moving US dollars on a different network. So it's a different way to like look at the system. So uh, yeah, I'm I'm very bullish on where things go. Who knows if there'll be an eventual winner uh, or what it'll look like. Maybe it'll be Cardano. You know, maybe we'll all be using Cardano in, in five years. No, but that won't happen. But uh, <laughs> but other than that, I think that uh, this technology is going to be here to stay. And we'll see nation states start launching their own uh, stable coins in the next five years, would be my guess. I agree. And before we get into your current role and your legal practice, you mentioned the Bitcoin fork. And from my understanding, that was when Bitcoin and Bitcoin Cash sort of forked. And now you have this, almost the classic Bitcoin, which has a certain number of transactions, and Bitcoin Cash, which has much more, much more transactions per second. Could you explain a little bit, maybe give the you know one or two minute synopsis on what happened there? You should definitely, the book to read, which I'm about a third of the way through, is The Block Size Wars by Jonathan Beers, I want to say. So you can get that on Amazon. It's a really good kind of concept of history. And, and it was a big cultural event, I think, in Bitcoin that people don't appreciate as well, because it was, there were, we had, the groups had to come around what their vision of the future was. And that was that was important for kind of solidifying what the culture was going to be going forward. Now, let's talk a little bit more about your current role. Um you are an associate at Lindsay McCarthy LLP in Vancouver. You do estate planning. You help clients with tax and trusts with a specialty in crypto. Could you explain a little bit more about what you do on a day-to-day -day basis and how you help your clients? Sure. So I, uh, associate here, I passed the bar um, in 2016 in Alberta. So I'm licensed in Alberta NBC. And um, I've been practicing estates law since probably 2017. My initial articling year was largely actually secured transactions, which was kind of my cup of tea at the end of the day. Uh, the firm I was at was about 20 lawyers and they all had their own kind of side desk where they did some estate practicing uh, with their own precedents and they all kind of ran it themselves. And I thought, well, I can centralize that within the firm and maybe make some more efficiencies and carve out a bit of a niche for myself. So I did that and uh, I've kind of been doing it ever since. Didn't take a state law in law school, kind of learned from the people who I was working with and the, the, the lawyers I've worked with since then. And I've actually found it's a, a really great practice area. It's non, I, I used to practice some estate litigation. So people fighting over dead people, dead, it's, fa it's a family law for dead people basically. And that's a very 
uh, stressful and high conflict area of law to practice in, um, which I enjoyed. I enjoyed the personal nature of it, but litigation, I don't like other lawyers is kind of what I find is my issue is that I don't like, uh, I, I don't like trying to out lawyer other lawyers. It's just not a lot of fun. I like problem solving and, and coming up with solutions and not, you know, dragging somebody down over a limitation date or, or whatever it is. So estates ended up being a really kind of good area of practice. And it's one that a lot of people don't think about, or, or a lot of lawyers would say, would run kind of, oh, I do, I, I do a little bit of estates or I'll do your will. Everybody, every lawyer thinks that they can do a will up. And uh, I think that there's a lot of problems. A lot of what I do sometimes is fixing problems that other lawyers have done because they just don't turn their mind to uh, estates in the way that they probably should. So at uh, Lindsay McCarthy, uh, we have got an office in Calgary and Vancouver. And uh, yeah, we've got a fantastic group here in Vancouver and in Calgary, some of the most knowledgeable lawyers I've, I've ever had the privilege of working with. Uh, the tax expertise is amazing. Uh, we do a lot of high net worth cross-border tax planning uh, for U.S. citizens or Canadian citizens uh, in the U.S. And um, yeah, it's been, I mean, I've only been here for three three months now, four months. My paintings you can see behind me are still on the floor, but uh, the uh, but so far it's been absolutely great. And I think you answered my next question, which was why you chose to focus your practice on estate planning, administration, and trust planning. But to tie that into crypto, why did you decide to bring crypto into your practice? And how have you seen your practice change since you've done that? Yeah, so, I mean, this is kind of my philosophy that, that's out there is when I look around at crypt, at the legal expertise in crypto, I think that 90% of it resides within uh, securities lawyers or corporate lawyers. So, you know, people who are doing, they, oh, I've got an ICO, I need to get a lawyer to do it, you know, make sure I'm compliant with securities or get an opinion on that. And that's good. That That's important. <clears throat> I think a lot of those lawyers, in truth, don't actually understand the software they're dealing with they are just dealing with kind of like it, like another company comes in, they're doing a fundraising round. They got to do the compliance, whatever they need to do. Um, and that's, but, but in terms of what their expertise is on actual uh, understanding the blockchain, understanding what's happening on chain, I don't know if it's always there. Um, I think that I'm not a developer. I'm not a coder. I, no, I'm learning. I'm slowly starting on my solidity journey, but it's slow. Um, and I didn't have a background in securities law, so I don't have any expertise in that. So this is what I have my expertise in. Um, and so I wanted to find a way to kind of bring the world that my knowledge about crypto on-chain activity uh, and bring that into the legal world. Now, I think there's a huge, while the huge, the big money in, in crypto lawyering is in the kind of, like I talked about the securities and kind of the corporate world, there is going to be a huge growth in the area of just what I call everyday law crypto. So whether that's people dying with crypto and having to deal with it, whether that's people getting divorced with crypto and having to deal with it, whether that's, you know, just, you know, any, you know, people, crypto getting stolen and having to go through the criminal system. You know, if there's a, how, how do you prove that something was stolen on chain? There's a whole bunch of interesting questions as, uh, digital assets become more and more uh, distributed through the population and held by more and more regular people. Um, and I think estates is a really interesting one there because 
the people who hold crypto, in my experience, are probably the same age bracket that have never thought about doing a will before because, you know, they're, they're in their 30s or 40s or 20s and they're never going to die. So it's not a problem. You know, man, that's going to live forever and we're going to get, uh, you know, we're going to be able to trans upload my brain onto the blockchain by the time I'm 60 kind of thing. So a lot of that, uh, what I, the way I look at it is that those people need an advisor and they need somebody who can speak to them on their level and who can talk to them about like, you know, if they're doing DeFi and they want to talk about how, you know, how do I, you know, how do I talk to my accountant about my urine fault? How do I talk to my accountant about the swaps that I've been doing um, on Uniswap? How do I talk to my, you know, how would my kids have access to this kind of uh, these assets if something happened to me? Um, I think that that's a totally, as far as I can tell, a totally untapped area of expertise. And so that's kind of why it's exciting for me is because I, as far as I can tell, I'm the only lawyer who, in Canada, at least, who's kind of pitching this hard as being, I will help you um, with the digital assets element of your, or your, your estate plan. Um, we can talk about kind of the details of that if you want, but like I said, I think that uh, there's a real need to generate this kind of expertise and to generate a, uh, a base level of knowledge within, the, I'd say, the professional services. So whether that's accounting, wealth advisors, lawyers, who can talk to their clients who have digital assets on their level and accurately understand what's going on. So, you know, I've posted a, a, a kind of manifesto about what my practice is and what I want it to be that I can send to you. But uh, that's kind of what I want to be as somebody who can help clients with crypto assets in whatever, even if it's not a legal question, if it's just me translating them, you know, translating for them what's happening to their accountant. If it's just me, you know, giving advice to another lawyer, maybe there's a lawyer involved in a family issue and there's Bitcoin involved and they don't get it, right? Um, there's a real risk for lawyers who don't get it to just make mistakes with it. And unlike, you know, you know, a lot, one of the quotes that I often heard from litigators was, uh, you know, when I was articling and more junior was kind of like, in litigation, you can always fix it. If you make a mistake, you can always go back to court and fix it. You can always kind of, you know, rejig something. If there's a little error, you can fix it. Uh, with ch on chain stuff, you can't. It's it's on chain. It's immutable. And so lawyers have to be able to understand that element and understand that risk. And you know, I wouldn't. You know, I'm, I practice in crypto law. I wouldn't want to be holding you know assets for anybody in my personal wallet. Like it's just like. That's just something I would do. It just I wouldn't handle it like I would handle other kind of meat space assets. So um, that's that's kind of the Cole's notes of it. Um, but we can talk more about the specific kind of elements in, involved in digital asset planning. But uh, that's the Cole's notes. We'll link your manifesto in the show notes as well for people who want to check that out. I think that's that sounds that's very really ominous. Cool. It's not a manifesto, <laughs> but it's you know my philosophy. I guess is what I the way I'm thinking right. about the world. Well, I read it and I think it's a good way to for people to understand where you're coming from and what your practice is about and where it's heading to for for people who are looking to retain a lawyer uh, who can help with their estate planning, especially with digital assets. To build off that. Why is estate planning important for people holding these digital assets on the blockchain, especially people you know who are in their twenties and planning on live forever to live forever? Sure. So estate planning is is not just what happens when I die, <clears throat> although that's important. Um, estate planning, comprehensive estate planning, is about a whole bunch of things. Um, it can be contingencies in bad situations. Maybe you don't die. Maybe if you're hit by a bus and you're on life support, 
what happens then. Uh, maybe it can be, you know, what happens if you're, you lose dementia, if you have, sorry, if you lose kind of cognitive capacity, uh, is there any guardrails up to make sure that you kind of are able to not, uh, I don't know, dump all your ether into a one JPEG and just, you know, do, you know, just ape all in on Yolo. Selena or something like that. <laughs> so uh, you've got a, it, it's both that. Uh, tax is another big one is that there's uh, significant savings for people. Um, if they have an estate that they think about how they want to spend their money and what their life wants to look like, there could be some significant tax optimization strategies um, around how they hold those assets, where those assets sits in terms terms of uh, whether they're in a trust, whether they're in a regular bank account, whether they're how we whether they're in a corporation. So uh, there's a whole bunch of different you know ways that we can make the situation work for that individual to save some money at the end of the day. And I think it's important to know that kind of you know wealthy people have figured out that estate planning is important. Because it doesn't do you any good to make, you know, 10 million bucks flipping a JPEG if you get hit by a bus two weeks later and your kids don't see an ounce of it. So that's really what it's about. It's about making sure that the work that you do in your life and the fortune that you have um, is passed on in a way that reflects what you want to see, uh, whether that's to your kids, whether that's to charity, whether that's to some other organization. We want to make sure that you maximize the value of your life, like in a, in a kind of very silly way. And uh, it's not silly. It sounds, it sounds kind of contrite when I say it, but uh, that's, that's what we're doing is, is making sure that people get the most out of their money, <laughs> right? Whether they're, whether they're around to see it or not. And, and for people who don't know why that would be important, as in what, consequences occur if you die intestate that means without a will uh, could you explain maybe what the worst case sure. scenario would be sure so <clears throat> so i practice in bc so obviously you know i can't give advice for other jurisdictions especially if they're outside of canada um, but my sense is that most uh jurisdictions will have some sort of a state and administration act or statute um, and if people die without a will and, and that is actually the case is that most people die when they don't have a will um, their assets will be distributed in a specific way. Uh, usually it'll say something along the lines of everything to your spouse first, everything to your kids second, you know, and then it flows out from there. It goes in, in, in BC, it runs to grandkids and then back up to parents and then cousins. There's a whole kind of the hierarchy in the act. Um, so on one hand, you could say that's fine. If you're young, uh, you know, and you only have, you know, 50,000 bucks, then who cares where it ends up? And, uh, that's, that's actually not a horrible position to take, except that it can be a lot more complicated and costly to get that money out of the process at the time. You do have a lot more efficiencies if you have a will done that you can then go to the court and say, this person passed away, here's the will, here's give us permission to distribute it accordingly, and you get your grant and probate and you move on. Um, if there is no person, which I have seen situations of, so there, if there is nobody on the list in the statute, then at the end of the day, the government takes all your money, right? So if you've got an estate worth 10 million bucks and you don't have any cousins or nephews or nieces, it sits in 
I think this was the case in Alberta. I haven't looked it up in BC. I think it sits in, in your account for seven years. And if nobody comes forward to claim it, then it goes into the general revenue of the general account of the local province. So um, nobody wants that, right? <laughs> nobody wants money flowing to the government for absolutely no reason. Uh, so that's one reason to do it. Uh, the more the more kind of nuanced answer for why it's important is that because life is complicated. Um, I've had so many people come to me, this is just traditional plan. We're not talking about crypto, but come to me and say, I've got a really simple will. It's me to my spouse, you know, everything to my spouse. And then if both of us pass away, everything to our kids. Okay, great. That sounds great. Come on in. We'll, we'll do an intake. And, and what I tell kind of junior lawyers coming up with in estates planning is that your intake is actually 90% of the work. Because if you understand the client's situation properly, it's quite easy to draft a will. Um, but intake isn't, you know, straight, necessarily straightforward. And, and when that couple comes in that says everything to my spouse, everything to my kids, they, you then find out that the child has a disability. Or you then find out that uh, maybe there's an uncle who has a drinking problem who, you know, has been asking, who's been borrowing money from their brother. Or you find out that they're, or maybe your client is, you know, owes some money to a sibling, right? And so part of what you do in the estate planning process is you kind of figure all that stuff out because you need to know what your liabilities are, um, what your exposure is uh, to make sure that your kids and the people that you want to have access to your estate um, have the access that they, they deserve. So by doing the intake properly, it's very, very rare in my experience that you meet somebody who is just kind of cut and paste everything to my spouse, everything to my kids, because like I said, life is complicated. Um, you know, at kind of the shop we're at now at Lindsay McCarthy, we do a lot of, um, I'd say that we call them mixed families. So they're, you know, multiple marriages, multiple kids from different marriages. Um, these are not straightforward issues. And I can tell you that if you don't have a will in those sorts of issues, you're asking to have extended family come and put their hand out and say, well, Jeff promised me when he was, you know, in his 60s, Jeff promised me that he was going to leave me this car, or he promised me he was going to leave me the house, or he promised me this. And if you don't have a will, those are, you know, not, they're not guaranteed to, to, to you know, claims. But if you have a will, it's the best protection you can have against those sorts of claims, because it says to the world, no, I didn't, this is my intention. If it's not in the will, then it doesn't fly. Um, if you don't have a will, then yeah, you leave yourself open to frankly, family members who are going to show up and say, I want a chunk of that. Um, and sometimes that's just that I've seen situations where that's deserved, but um, it's not, uh, it's not something you want to do. So when you attain a certain level of wealth or assets or family structure, I think that it's very important that you at least turn your mind to these things and they're difficult conversations and difficult things to think about, but turning your mind to what your risks are and how you want to make sure your kids or charities or whatever your, your you know, your passions are, um, how they're going to get it and make sure that the people who don't, you don't want to get it, don't end up with it. Because even if you, even if the chances are low, uh, a claim against an estate can cost a lot of money for the estate. So even if there's a failed claim, you know, to, for some cousin who, who wants to get his, his cut that you promised him 20 years ago, um, it's going to cost you money to defend that. And you're in a lot better position to defend that claim if you have an estate plan with a will. Um, 
That's that's the short answer. That's the long answer. To, <laughs> the medium today. answer. Medium answer. It's the medium answer. It's the medium answer. If someone's listening and they say, okay, you know, I, I hear you about estate planning, but that's for rich people. You know, I only own a ether rock and, but now it's worth say 200, 300 grand. Is there a time when people should start considering going to someone to get advice on estate planning? Like, is there a certain, you know, maybe age or, or certain net worth or any time, or should people always have a plan in place? I think if your ether rock grows to more than like a hundred grand, 150 grand, you should spend a thousand bucks and start getting some advisors around you. You know, whether that's a lawyer or an accountant, a wealth advisor, even if your plan is not to like go invest in TradFi, um, you're, you're going to keep it in Ether or crypto or DeFi. Um, you start, you want to start getting that. A lot of people I have come in and I'm dealing with high net worth crypto clients now, they will tell me, they'll be like, I have not, you know, paid taxes on this stuff. How do I do that? Right. I'm getting, I'm getting paid in USDC for this contract for the last three years for some development work. I haven't, how do I pay taxes on? And we got to sort that stuff out because, and, and I, and I'll, I'll say upfront, I don't want, I'm not going to sit here and say pay taxes because that's what everybody, you know, that's what you should do. But people have to have an understanding of what their exposure is um, and what the consequences are of, you know, being on the wrong side of the IRS or the CRA in Canada, because they have a lot of tools to come after you and make your life miserable. And uh, you need to understand what those are. They'll tack interest on, you know, without hesitation for, for overdue uh, balances. And, and you need to know what that is. And, and again, who, whether you pay it or not, it's not my biz. You know, I'm the lawyer. I'll here to advise you. I'm not here to make you a criminal or rat you out. Um, but understanding that helps you better manage your level of risk, better manage your strategy and investing strategy. And I think it's almost, there's almost no case where somebody has come to me and said, I have all this, I have these issues that we have not been able to essentially find ways to save them money in doing whatever the process we need to do. So um, I think that answers your question. Absolutely. And I think it's something that people should always keep in the back of their mind, especially involved in such a volatile space like this, where you're not paying a thousand dollars for your entire estate plan to be made. What you're paying the money for is a consultant, a legal consultant to come in and explain your risk, explain the opportunities and problem solve. Yeah. And I think I said, you know, 100,000, 150,000 bucks. Sure. The, the other time that you should think about estate planning is when life is complicated, right? So if you have a child who has a dis, who you learn has a disability, you need to have a conversation with, with a, a probably a, an accountant and probably a tax, uh, probably a lawyer about how to make sure you maximize and put guardrails in place to take care of that child and, and make sure they're going to get money that they need but also how to make sure they get it in a form that is usable to them, given whatever their issues are. So the two areas are, yes, there's a financial threshold that if you cross it, you should start thinking about that, whether you're trading in TradFi or trading in crypto, or, but there's also kind of this idea of family issues that I think need to drive more of the conversation, because again, it's always cheaper to try to fix the problem upfront than to litigate it after the fact. So that's, that. those are the two big ones that I'd say about why, uh, people should think about it. The other thing I'd say is, is that, you know, 
it's not as uncommon as you think for things to happen to people that allow that that that, that are life interruptions and not maybe death, but maybe a catastrophic injury, some sort of kind of uh, illness that comes on, and having some preparation for that. It, put it this way, you know, I have had clients uh, again tradfi stuff, but you know who get cancer right when when they're in their 30s or 40s, and that's tragic and it's terminal cancer. Um, you don't want to be spending the last, if you've only got six months to live, you don't want to be spending it talking to me, right? You don't want to be spending it working out your finances and fighting with your family about where your estate's going to go in the in that time period. You want to have that set up ahead of time so that you get told that horrible news that I'm not trying to like downplay it of. And you can know that your kids are already secure and you can know that your kind of family's taken care of and, and nothing's going to kind of be able to come in and take away the, the work that you've been able to do and you can make the most out of that time. So I, it's a weird, you know, now that I'm saying it out loud, it's a weird practice area that I'm in sometimes, but uh, that's okay. I like it. It's definitely unique. And then I'm sure all the circumstances are, are very different with every client. Um, now you said like the most common questions that you get related to crypto are tax. What are some of the tax implications that people aren't aware of when they're buying and selling and even holding digital assets? Are there some, maybe you could say one or one, two or three that, that really come to mind? So I'll leave the tax question aside for, for right now. I think that the, the biggest difference that I, the biggest value that I am adding in onto an estate plan for crypto is that I understand how crypto works. I understand how multi-signature wallets work. I understand how keys work. I understand a bunch of the things that can go wrong. Um, and what I call, I work on what I call an, an alignment problem. So unlike a lot of crypto issues, there's actually not a huge amount of uncertainty about what a digital asset is under the law. You know, regardless of whether it's a, you know, a commodity or a security or whatever, it's going to fall into your estate. It is an asset that you own and it's going to fall into your estate somewhere. Um, so I don't have to worry about, you know, legal definitions or, or shoehorning uh, the asset into a certain definition. What I do worry about is how your will is actually going to, or your plan, whatever it is, is actually going to be put into place. Because the traditional way that you would deal with things is, okay, Jeff passes away, uh, Jeff has a house, Jeff has some bank accounts, Jeff has some investments. Uh, great. They're all in Jeff's name. So I take the will and I go to the court and the court gives me a, a grant of probate, which I then take to the, the fiduciaries of those assets and I give it to them and they put them in the name of the executor and then I can distribute them out or whoever the executor is can distribute them out because I can't be my executor if I'm dead. Turns out that's a, legal, that's a real tough one. Um, that doesn't work for crypto because a court has no authority to make an on-chain transaction, to reorder the chain, um, or to reassign who the wallet holder is, or to a key holder is for a wallet. So you have to do a lot of your planning. You can't rely on a court basically to enforce your will. You have to do a lot of planning without the will. Um, so my practice is always to include instructions about what to do with my digital, with a client's digital assets in the will itself to say, this is an account that I hold. Here is the, here is the address. 
there's an issue around privacy. We don't always include the address, but but for example sake, we just say we will. Here's the address. I want it to be split between my three kids. That's that's great, and it's important to do that so that there's a you know a legal document to the world saying what your intentions are. But you have to then operate on the assumption that nobody is going to be able to fulfill that unless you have the keys in the right places to be able to make it happen. So, depending on the client's intentions, um, I work with them, and you know we may bring in a third party kind of multi-signature, uh, like Unchained, uh, can help clients create multi-signature wallets because a policy of mine is I will never create a wallet for an individual. It's too much liability on my end. So if we think that we need a multi-signature wallet and the client isn't capable of doing that themselves, then we have to bring in a third party, which is no problem to do that. Um, They're great. And uh, we can make an, we, we basically create a structure where there is a variety of contingencies on what will happen if somebody passes away or isn't injured, and we'll be able to make sure that there's enough people who have a signature who can sign a wallet address to make sure that the transactions happen appropriately, but nobody has enough signatures to be able to arbitrarily move it in a direction that is nefarious. So, you know, the, the prime example is, let's say that I have one child and I want to give all my money when I die to my child. Well, how do I do that? Because if I don't want the child to have the money, the, the assets, the crypto before I pass, uh, then I can't give them the wallet and the keys before I pass. So then I leave them in a secure, maybe I put them in a safety deposit box somewhere. But now I'm dependent on one, the safety deposit box being transferred correctly. And two, the vulnerability of you know any sort of security keys or, or, or passphrases uh, being, you know, exposed in that process because we all know if you're again, if you know crypto, you understand that as soon as somebody sees a seed phrase, uh, that wallet address is compromised and should be consumed dead. So putting in a safety deposit box has even that has risks to it around who is going to open it, who's going to be there because it only takes you know a quick second and somebody take a photo of it or even see it and memorize enough of the words to be able to make the whole thing vulnerable. So. That is kind of the value add that I bring is a is a detailed and comprehensive understanding of all those risks and how to build a plan that matches your will. So one of the things that's unique about me, about the practice that I'm trying to build is that component of it is not jurisdictionally dependent, right? So I don't know how to do a will in Texas. Don't know how to do it, right? Not qualified, don't know how to do anything like that. But if a client in Texas has a will or they're working with a lawyer to write a will, I can help that lawyer make sure that what they're writing is going to actually be in alignment with what that person's wishes are and with the way that we will set up a key structure to do that. Does that make sense? That so makes sense. It, I'm, I'm glad you broke that down. Yeah. So that, again, not bringing a huge, I'm, I'm you know, i I'm a good estates practitioner, I'd like to think, but I'm not bringing anything crazy or advanced or out of this world on the estates side from the pure legal perspective. What I'm really trying to offer is an individual who really understands these technologies on a deep level. I'm using DeFi every day. You know, I have a penguin, you know, you know, we're flipping JPEGs over here and uh, can talk to clients about that and can understand that if my client comes in and says, 
oh, I've got a crypto punk and I want to fractionalize it, you know, between my kids in my estate plan, um, that they, I, I actually know what they're talking about, right? And that, and I think a lot of lawyers won't, or, you know, and I can, we can talk about this a bit more later, uh, lawyers will just assume that it works the same as anything else, operate, draft up a plan, and then potentially end up in a bunch of professional liability because they didn't properly understand the asset. So um, another project that I, I work on and a service that I offer is I do um, crypto education for lawyers and, and accountants. So I have a you know one and a half hour course that walks them through what is Bitcoin, what is Ethereum, what is blockchain. We do a little transaction back and forth because that was the big eye opener for me. And we talk about the risks involved in a professional practice and how to manage your client's money and how to not manage your client's money. Because in a lot of cases, I wouldn't, I, I, I love this stuff. I will never hold a client's, like I will never be, you know, a, a single key holder for any of my client's crypto funds. It just won't. It doesn't work the same that a normal trust account does in dealing with law. There aren't the same guardrails. I'm just as likely to get rugged as my client is. So those are things that regular lawyers won't understand. Um, and that we need to get some professional expertise in this area to understand those risks so we can provide good advice to our clients. Now, I can imagine if you went to a regular estate lawyer and you said, I'd like to set up a, a fractionalization for my CryptoPunk JPEG, they would look at you as if you're crazy and ask you to leave. <laughs> so, yeah. So I- I think it's great to have that expertise. Now, you mentioned the the keys, and I think the private keys are so important, especially in estate planning, because you have to essentially trust the lawyer to have, or trust someone to have those keys. Could you explain a bit more how that multi-sig works and how, you know, so say I have a multi-sig and I have a child, and then I work with you, Jeff, what would happen? Like, would my child have a key, you'd have a key, and then I'd have a key, so when I die you and him would use both your keys to access the, the crypto? Or is it different in every situation? It, I mean, every situation is different because we need to have a good understanding of who the individuals are who are having the keys, what their intentions are. There's a whole bunch of kind of issues around it. And, um, but yes, fundamentally, that's, that's a very, very simple setup is to have just a two of three multi-sig. So for people who may not know crypto, that means that in order to do a transaction, you have to have not just one signature, which is normal, you'd have a wallet that's set up specially uh, that would require two of three signatures. Um, and you can set that up in, I think, as many varieties as you want. Five of seven, I know, is possible. Seven of nine. There's a whole bunch of different varieties that you can do. Um, I, think it, I think the combinations are unlimited. The ones that I've done are relatively smaller and more straightforward, a three of five or a two of three. Um, and uh, we may have multiples of those depending on what the plan is. Um, but uh, that is how it works. So then you would, if, if one of those key holders passed away, you would then be able to initiate the transaction to either a new wallet with a new set of multi-signature holders so that you could have, go back to your normal five or three, right? So you still have everybody because in a two of three wallet, it goes, you lose all the funds if you have more than two people die. So you got to make sure that those people are not going to be on the same plane necessarily. Um, so there's a lot of things to think about. The answer I'm giving you is the typical lawyer answer of it depends. Um, but, uh, but that's kind of the problem that I work through with clients. And, you know, I think one of the things that I'm really excited about, and I have to say, uh, 
you had Ross on last week or last one of the last episodes that I, I listened to you. And uh, he put out with LexDAO this week uh, a trust, uh, a template for a trust, uh, specific trust, which is phenomenal because I actually foresee a world where a lot of this estate planning is done on chain. And that actually brings a greater level of security to it, even if it you lose a lot of the flexibility. So I'm that's kind of where I see this going. And I that's the world that I want to kind of be a part of is making, I don't want to say making myself obsolete, but it certainly opens estate planning. If it could estate planning could be properly done on chain, it brings up it levels that playing field and allows everyday people who would never think about going to a lawyer to get a will done to still do estate planning. And that I think is a super worthwhile public good. And I want to put a bookmark on that because I do want to talk to you about smart contracts and the future of estate planning with regards to blockchain. Um, but just to just to go back to the signatures, are there better the private keys? Are there best practices that maybe you implement or or you think people should start implementing with regards to the private keys? Because I mean, I've lost a wallet because I can't find the private keys to, and I'm sure most people listening have at, at one point or the other. And I also can imagine when you go to a lawyer who doesn't have this experience, they'd say, okay, you know, give me the password to your wallet. You'd give them the private key. They put it on a file. Anyone we'll can never, access We'll it. never keep private keys in my office. Right? So it, was and, very, it was a very clear thing. Yeah. So are there best practices you think people should implement with regards to their private keys? And especially even maybe not necessarily just holding it themselves, but while they're working with a lawyer, an accountant, and other professional? Yeah, that's a really good question. So, I mean, I I haven't come up with my own best practices for private keys. I use, I use the same best practices that I think a lot of people use. Uh, again, Andreas Antonopoulos, there's lots of kind of good resources out there, whether you want to, uh, you know, People talk about splitting up their keys into several different places. I don't necessarily think that that's a good idea, but uh, you know, if you have a 24-word uh, seed phrase, then you split it up into three different eight-word chunks for additional security. I don't know. I think there's some arguments on whether that, that's a good idea. I do think keeping it somewhere safe is very important, depending on, again, how much you have in it. I think actually the, a more useful way to think about it is, is to have multiple levels of security. So you may have one key that is the long-term holding wallet um, and keep that totally separate from kind of your day trading or DeFi um, key because they are used for so totally different things. One of them is needed to kind of play the market or access funds if you need to. And the other one is there just to kind of be the long-term hold and, and, and those don't need to be on the separate wallet. So sometimes the answer is setting up more than one wallet with different kind of intentions around them. Um, in terms of, you know, again, in terms of my practice, I will never hold a client's private keys, period. End of story. Um, it will never happen. Um, I may hold a multi-signature key for some clients, but to be honest, even that I have real reservations about doing because I'm the only one in my office who knows how to use it, right? So, you know, a law firm, I, I get hit by a bus, law firm now has the keys, and they don't know what to do with them. They don't know how to initiate a multi-signature transaction. They don't know how to, um, you know, worry about the security. They may just turn that over to one of the other key holders. And now you've totally corrupted your, 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 your whole multi-signature wallet. So there's a lot of things that I'm, and to be honest, there's a lot of things that I am working through and trying to figure out the best practices for, because I don't think that a lot of lawyers have thought about these sorts of things before. Again, that's the difference between, 
the kind of what I'd call like the retail law practice of estate planning, family law, small business law, and the kind of uh, more commercial practice of securities law is that the lawyers who are working on Bay Street or Wall Street helping crypto companies get started are not worrying about you know, whether or not their office is going to end up holding the keys. They're, they're doing their traditional legal practice just like they would, and that's somebody else's problem. But in the retail world, where we get asked frequently, especially in the estate planning, can I put these documents in with my will to go to my kids when they, you know, to put it in the file? Can you hold on to these bank records for me? Can you hold on to this, whatever it is? Um, you know, I've opened up safety deposit boxes that have $100,000 of, um, you know, Canadian savings bonds. Like people, you know, people leave things in funny places and we don't have a tendency to worry about that too much with traditional assets. But my kind of crusade is to make sure that lawyers are really worrying about that when it comes to digital assets. I think the biggest concern, at least uh, like in my mind, would be if someone gets your key, they can they can access the client's wallet and make transactions that not only are immutable, but that would show, you know, that Jeff went in and transferred the money to a wallet. Yeah. So that, so that's, I mean, again, this is something that other people, normie lawyers wouldn't understand, but that is the risk is that if a client says, says like, okay, I will send you, you know, I, I, you will hold on to this key for me and then they move the money. There is no way to track who actually initiated that transaction if we both had the same key. So I can be as culpable as they are in terms, you know, it's not to mention, so it's one, I could get, caught in a sort of, you know, a honeypot kind of uh, uh, situation where I, I'm going to get fingered for stealing a bunch of money from a client and I have no way to disprove that. And it's also a great way to launder money, right? So we have to be, you know, as much as I think the concerns about Bitcoin money laundering and, and, and all that stuff and criminal uses is overblown, it's not zero. And uh, lawyers have lawyers in regular practice have to be aware of where money is coming from and how it's moving around our trust accounts so that we can avoid being patsies in money laundering schemes, which is not as uncommon as people would think. And it applies doubly for Bitcoin and, and cryptocurrencies because of the way that it, it, it is handled differently and because it's unmutable. You can't uh, save yourself. So hypothetically, this would never happen. But if I was to do that, I would only accept it with a new wallet. Right. The only way that I, you know, okay, you want me to hold funds, you know, fine, but I will create a new wallet where I am the only person who's the key holder and I can be responsible for that. Even that has a huge amount of risk because if something happened to me or I lost it, you know, then I'm on the hook anyway. So it's not something that I would ever do. It's not something I have ever done. Um, my job is to advise clients and, and help them find the best practices for securing their keys, making sure that they're in a combination of ways that are accessible to family members, if that's the plan, or non-accessible, but uh, but findable through a through a through a variety of different kind of mechanisms. So, for example, you 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 know, I say I wouldn't hold somebody's set of keys. I may hold a hardware wallet that I don't know the password to, right? You know, the password could be you know just the you know if I have a Trezor and it has a an eight digit password to it. I may be comfortable holding that so long as I'm comfortable that the password is elsewhere, right? But even that, I haven't done that in the past and I would have to have a real think about that. And I think that, you know, I don't know if we'll talk about kind of regulation, but one of the problems with this area right now is that we need some direction from law societies and 
not even I don't not even talk about regulators from a security standpoint. I mean, I just don't know if if I'm what I'm doing is kind of you know going to be okayed by the law society because I can't call the law society, explain to them what I'm doing, and have anybody there understand it. So we're I'm really trying to be thoughtful, and the partners I have to say have been absolutely amazing about letting me bounce ideas off of them, talk to them, being very understanding of my you know, fanaticism for crypto and, and, and wanting to learn about it themselves. And, and, uh, you know, I think that I'm hoping that we're, we are setting up something that can be emulated elsewhere, because I think that, again, this is how law firms are going to have to figure out how to practice going forward when more and more clients have these assets natively. And I'll say one other thing, you know, a lot of, there is some estate planning mechanisms that we use, uh, that are very useful where the person doesn't hold the keys at all. Right. So, you know, if you send your Bitcoin to a BlockFi wallet, that's it's still there, right? Now you're trusting BlockFi, right? You've, you've taken it out of your own hands, but it does in a lot of ways simplify the estate planning process because suddenly that BlockFi account would actually fall under your estate and it would be, you could theoretically go to BlockFi with a grant of probate and say, please reassign this account to the executor and do that. Um, so there's not just kind of, on-chain ways that we can do that. There are a variety of kind of other advisors, you know, other kind of centralized uh, exchanges or whatever BlockFi wants to call itself this week uh, that we can use in different, depending on the situation and depending on the amounts, right? Maybe we want to have some money that is rapidly accessible. Maybe we want to have some assets that are held in a way that they can be distributed out to children over a gradual time period so that money comes in gradual stages. I mean, it's a common occurrence in our practice that we would don't really want to give millions of dollars to people who are 21, right? Like it's like if somebody die, if, if dad dies and you know leaves behind 30 million bucks and gives it to me when I'm 21 years old, there's going to be zero left by the time I'm 30, right? So, and I, and I say that as a joke, but it's it's a serious issue, and a lot of people with too much money and some bad um, habits can uh, can end up destitute or dead uh, because of that money. So again, that's part of the whole estate planning process. And my job is trying to figure out how crypto can play by those rules. And we can make sure we can give the same level of service to somebody who has and wants to hold their own digital assets, um, as opposed to just, just like we would with somebody who's traditional kind of meat space will. I'm glad you brought up the Law Society because I think that's something almost going under the radar. For those who don't know, the Law Society governs lawyers. It's a self-governing profession where you need the Law Society to sort of accredit you to practice law. So after you pass the bar and you do articling in Canada, then now you're officially a lawyer. They can disbar you at any time if you do something that doesn't fit in with what the Law Society permits which is why crypto is a really interesting one where if you're say holding private keys for a client, maybe the law society doesn't approve of that. Now you get disbarred or now your license gets suspended. There's a lot of consequences that can happen there. So I'm glad you brought that up. That's not something I'd thought about before that I should check into before I work with uh, some crypto clients. Yeah. And, and, and I guess I'd say, you know, as lawyers, the best way, and in my experience, the law society has been great when I phoned them with questions, um, it's just there's a lot of questions they don't understand because, you know, but at least I can be on the record saying I phoned to ask if I'm doing this appropriately and nobody seems to be able to give me a good answer. So I'm going to do it anyway. Um, that that's, that's one approach, but definitely, you know, one of the things that I, so I've been offering this for 
a little over a year now. I've taught the course a couple of times. So I have a, I have a one hour, a one and a half hour course that I teach. I think maybe I said this already for, for kind of uh, lawyers, accountants, professionals, and that the law society has actually approved it for CLE credits here in BC. And I know that it'll, that'll transfer to some of the other provinces as well. And um, that's kind of one of the things that I talk about in that is kind of like, is trying to bring up the level of basic education. Not everybody needs to be kind of, you know, you know, a engineering lawyer who understands the blockchain on a super detailed level. Um, but by bringing up that level of professional education and kind of awareness, we can help that will eventually flow into law societies, flow into regulators, flow into kind of, it'll just become a part of the natural world of lawyering. And that's, I think, a really underappreciated and important point here is that we can, we can win allies without actually having them own any Bitcoin or Ethereum. We can win allies just by letting them know what we're doing and being transparent about it and, and educating them at a super basic level, but not expecting them to invest or believe that it's kind of the future and just say, you know, you can believe that I can believe this, but this is what I'm doing. And you need to understand it because when a client comes through your doors, who's doing this, you need to be able to speak their language. I think that resonates with lawyers. And I think lawyers are genuinely curious and problem solvers and, and they do latch onto this stuff. It's just, they're also tend to be technologically very slow moving. And so you have to kind of say, I'm doing this now. So tell me I'm wrong. And, uh, see who who stands up but that's a big part of it for me and i think that if any other lawyers wanted to you know connect with me on how i do that I, i'm happy to reach out to them and and collaborate on, on doing some lawyer education for lawyers because by bringing again like i said bring a rising tide is going to lift all ships on that kind of front as this information becomes more disseminated people will be able to service clients more then it will become less stigmatized and it'll be less scary for people to invest in then it'll become more popular. Like there's a, it just, it's a feedback loop on itself. So. Yeah. I think that's a really kind way to put it to say lawyers are technologically slow <laughs> based, based on what I've seen so far. It, it's, it's hard to, you know, teach an old dog new tricks, but I think this is something that most lawyers will at least need an understanding for over the next five to 10 years. And speaking of the next five to 10 years, how do you see estate planning impacted by blockchain, buy smart contracts, where now you can program a will to automatically give to the child in increments once they turn 21. How do you think estate planning, legal, you know, lawyers can work with smart contracts? Do you think it's necessary to have an understanding of coding? How, what do you think that landscape looks like in five to 10 years? So, I don't think the traditional way of doing wills is ever going to go away because there's always going to be a couple of things. There's always going to be assets in the real world <clears throat> that aren't replicated on chain, right? Even like the art that I have behind me. I mean, you can JPEG it and, and put it on OpenSea, but the physical art, you know, it's not going to, it can't be on chain. So there's always going to, and you know, it's the same with a lot of things that we deal with keepsakes, you know, pictures of family instruments, that kind of stuff. They're not going to exist in the same way on chain. So traditional, you know, law, traditional will and estate planning isn't going to go anywhere. Um, I do think um, that there is a huge opportunity to build out some technology. And I'm quietly trying to work on this with my low level of development skills um, to build out, you know, trusts and common law trusts. Uh, it's will basic will templates that can be utilized by anybody anywhere 
to build their own will and have their assets in their wallet be subject to a certain number of uh, uh, certain distribution plan and have kind of a legacy there. There's some complicated problems around that. One is creating, um, I call it a, I would call it a death oracle. So one is creating, a, you know, an, an on-chain signal that somebody has actually passed away and having that verified so that you can make a call to those contracts and have them begin a distribution. Um, I think that that's a solvable problem, even if it's not super elegant, the way that I've penned it out in my head. And again, if anybody wants to work on that problem, they can track me down on Twitter. Um, it's, uh, but yeah, I think that there's a huge opportunity there, especially around the, you know, what's the role of an executor or a trustee? Um, it's basically to consolidate assets and distribute them according to instructions. That's something that a contract can do. Right. So for a lot of wills, for a lot of trusts, they can be immediately kind of the, the, the executor can be replaced from a person to a contract. Obviously, there's big there's consequences of that from a liability perspective. And there are also always going to be trusts that are not capable of going on chain because there's just trustee discretion in terms of, you know, again, have a set up a trust for a disabled child or a grandchild you know, a contract isn't going to know when that child needs extra care or if they're planning a trip or if they're, you know, whatever it is. And that's the job of a person trustee is to figure out, okay, they need, they need a bit of money for this cost. They need a bit of money for this. Maybe there's a way that you can set up a DAO to do that maybe, but I don't know if it's more efficient. Um, you know, a family DAO, right? Like there may be kind of a room for that. Uh, I think those are real edge cases though. So my priority is really kind of what I see on chain is figuring out how to take some of the very basic trust and will structures and to build them out on chain to make the really easy stuff accessible to an everyday person. And I do that. I would encourage that knowing full well that the rules on estates are different in every province and every state and every country. Um, but there are some common law things that I think people agree on that you should have some discretion over who you pass it on to. And at the end of the day, it's up to those jurisdictions themselves to enforce that, um, and to the beneficiaries or, uh, claimants who think they are beneficiaries to enforce that. And, uh, if you, if, if you use a tool online to build your own will, and it doesn't happen to exactly comply with the local jurisdiction, but it does what you want it to do. Uh, absolutely, the claimants will have a claim and that'll have to get worked out in the courts. But is that better or worse than not having that tool in the first place? I don't know. Um, but I think that that's something that can be built out on, on chain. And I also think that's something that can eventually be jurisdictionally specific as we get more lawyers and engineers in the space to understand the nuances between a South Dakota will and a Texas will and a British Columbia will. Uh, you know, those are all things that we can that we can work out. But in the meantime, we got to work on the basics, and we got to get the the functionality of it there. And I think that that's a, a really really exciting project. Um, and again, total I, I, one of the things that I jokingly say about uh, you know my practice is that uh, what are the two things that are inevitable in life are death and taxes, and I do both, right? So I mean. When you talk about people dying, you've, you've got a pretty solid market, right? Like, so in terms of uh, figuring this out, it is something that everybody will have to experience and will have to think about at some point in their life. 
And if the tools are there, it's not sexy and it's not, you know, it's not, you know, up only DeFi. Um, and we're not like, you know, doing the crazy Ponzi, uh, you know, farming schemes, but it's a real tool that people really do use. And it really does matter. That's one of the things that I can't stress enough is that having a, thinking about your plan and your legacy is one of the biggest things you can do for figuring out how your life is on the right track. If you're achieving your goals, if you're taking care of the loved ones you want to care about, that's all there. Wow. I'm glad I asked that question. That was a fantastic answer, Jeff. Thank you. And I have two follow-ups on that because a couple of things came to mind when you were talking. The first is relating to oracles because as I was researching into Bitcoin and blockchain, it kept popping up that, okay, sure, everything can be done on chain, but this garbage out, garbage in principle or garbage in, garbage out principle still applies where if you can't trust that someone actually is dead, how can you get these smart contracts to auto-execute? And I love that idea of using a DAO where now you could have a lawyer, now you could have the government involved, and they maybe vote to say, okay, you know, now John Smith has passed away. Now the contract will auto-execute. Could you maybe explain your thoughts on that and how you think that would be implemented in the future? Sure. So I've got some thoughts on how you'd implement it that I'm going to kind of keep to myself because there's some projects happening. But I think that, uh, but I'll tell you some of the big problems that have to be solved, which I think is important to identify. So when somebody passes away who, traditionally, uh, when somebody passes away, uh, the local, you know, DMV or statistics group will put out a death certificate, right? So that's almost as far as I can tell exclusively a domain of the government is basically printing out a certification of somebody's death. Um, there are some very, very remote cases of people who have a death certificate issued for them and they're not actually dead. And there's also some issues around when a missing person is assumed to be dead uh, that are determined by statute that uh, I'm just going to ignore because uh, that's just not, I don't want to play that little crazy pond. Um, the question is, how do we get that information on chain? And is it, is it, uh, is it, is it a safe assumption to trust the government that when a certificate of death comes out, that it's that, that, that it's correct. I think it's a safe assumption to do that because at the end of the day, the liability for that is against the government. So long as, as the person you're talking about is, is the same person. And that actually is one of the, the issues here is make is how you deal with identifiable information on chain. So if I want to know if uh, if I someone wants to know how John whether John Smith has passed away, they'd better make sure they have the right John Smith. And how do you have the right John Smith? Well, you have to either have some identifiable uh, information like social insurance number, social security number, uh, birth date, death date. Like there's a bunch of other information that you'd need to confirm that that's the same person. And that information changes in every province, in every state, um, and probably every country. So the pro part of the problems is, is that there's, if you want to come up with a death oracle, you need to find a way to take information uh, that differs. You need different information in every jurisdiction. And that creates a real problem in kind of overbuilding and not being able to streamline kind of the information pipeline. So that is a major issue. Um, 
the other thing you need to understand to do is to actually know when somebody passes away and a death certificate is issued, how somebody who lives just on chain, right? So how would a contract ever learn that information? How do you bring that information on chain? I think it's highly unlikely that a government agency issuing death certificates is ever going to plug into Ethereum and say, John Smith has passed away and announce it to the, to the world and put it on chain. So we need some sort of mechanism to move that information from MeetSpace on chain um, and allow on-chain contracts to interact with it and respond however they're programmed to. So that's an issue that I think is solvable, um, but it's not, it's a very different, when you look at like a project like Chainlink, right? And for those people who don't know, Chainlink is an Oracle uh, project. I'm not super familiar with the technicals, but they provide price, largely it's price information across all of the Ethereum blockchain. So if I want to change my Uniswap to or uh, yeah Uniswap tokens to Ethereum, in order to know what the exchange rate is, I need to know what the price is. I need to know what the exchange rate is, and so I have to make a call to an Oracle somewhere to figure out the contract has to make a call to figure out what the actual exchange rate is before that exchange takes place, um, so that I can know how much I'm going to get when I make my swap. That information has to come from a variety of sources that you know are trusted and decentralized. And Chainlink has a whole infrastructure to kind of guarantee that the information you're getting hasn't been tampered with so that the swap you're doing isn't going to be sandwiched or front run um, or, or altered in some sort of way. So that works great for numerical things like price data, right? Or even things like I know, um, you know, Ross on your uh, one of your last podcasts talked about what kind of insurance. It's the same kind of thing where like you can input data into the contract at the outset and make a call for numerical data. But moving non-numerical kind of non-quantifiable things on chain is not quite as simple. So uh, again, it's a large problem, but I actually think it's a it's an important problem because death will be one of a whole bunch of different types of characteristics that we'll want to be able to bring on chain in order to make full functionality, to make full use of the Ethereum kind of ecosystem and the the, the decentralization that it offers. Um, you know, so even things like, did I get in a car accident? How does, if I want to have, if I want to have car insurance, how do I bring a car accident on chain? How do I bring, you know, a whole host of, you know, medically, what if I get diagnosed with some illness? Should that, is that something that can be on chain? I have no idea. I'm just thinking of these off the top of my head, but they're the same kind of characteristics of, yes, some doctor somewhere says you have some illness, but you have to find a way to bring that on chain and bring it on chain in a way that is, you know, is trustable, right? It's trustless in a sense. Can you get it from multiple different sources simultaneously? Can you ensure that there's no collaboration between those sources? Those are the things that Chainlink is working on. API3 is another group that's working on projects like this. Um, and Eric Dylas, who you've talked to, I think is working with API3 on that those problems. So they're really interesting ones. And I think that solving them will m- move Ethereum forward massively in the types of problems that it can solve. I think it'll be interesting because you don't necessarily have to completely reinvent the wheel, especially with things like doctors, where 
the doctor could act as the oracle and they could enter in, you know, the fact that Jacob's been diagnosed with X, Y, and Z, right? And then the interesting question comes in then, what chain do they use? Do they go through Ethereum? Do they have, you know, USMD chain? where now you have some different token and that's how you maybe pay your doctor. I think that could really transform the way the world works. I think, I think in, I think in five to 10 years, I think that'll be less of an issue because I think there'll be enough. There's enough projects out there like Cosmos and uh, that, that are building out Polygon that are building out kind of interchain operability. So it's likely that a call to, if, 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 a, if an Oracle only spoke to Ethereum, there would be a way to make a call to Ethereum if you are working on Solana or another project to see if that information is there. I, I don't know if that's what's, I, I don't think that that's what's being built in right now because I know they're just talking about kind of bringing, bridging assets between disparate chains, but I would guess that that's something that they would be able to think about. Um, yeah, that's that's an interesting question. Who they talk to? I mean, the bigger one is from a legal perspective: is where's the liability, right? That's always the question you have to ask. So, let's say that there's some, let's say you know, estate plan. I put in an estate plan in, in place. I go on, you know, vacation to India for for a couple months, just like somebody you know did once upon a time, and and then suddenly it registers that I'm dead but I'm not actually dead. I'm on vacation. So when I come back, I realize that like, oh, my estate has been fully distributed and uh, I have no assets. Who do I blame, right? Who do I sue? And that is an important question that needs to be answered because that's where your assurances need to be. And so, for example, in the case you said with a doctor, yeah, that is a good solution. If a doctor can enter information that goes on chain and it's traceable back to that doctor, then if the doctor makes an incorrect diagnosis, or is committing fraud, or is doing anything else, there's a permanent record of that, and you can go back and litigate that problem. Um, likewise, with the death certificate sort of thing, you've got to find a way to bring it on, and you've got to have somebody who can take responsibility in the real world and say, I'm willing to get sued if I'm wrong, and hold their hand up. And that's kind of the opposite approach of a lot of you know Ethereum and DeFi, which is the anon, like if we do it without anybody knowing who we are, and, and we just bring it on chain and there's nobody to sue because we're not there. And I have lots of respect for those people because they're building like amazing projects. And I think that anons need a permanent space in the ecosystem. But I also think there's room for people, maybe like myself, who are willing to say, yeah, I'm willing to, you know, to put my hand up and say, I am going to verify this. and I'm going to be independent and I'm going to do, you know, I'm going to act as one of several oracles. And if I'm wrong, I will have to eat the liability for that. Um, and I will have to charge some sort of fee that's, commensurate with the risk that I'm taking there, just like lawyers are used to doing. So anyway, those things are crazy and they're really exciting because I think that they are totally going to be here. Um, you know, it'd be, it'd be, it'd be, it'd be funny if the whole banking system, you know, got eaten up by DeFi and then it just got immediately replaced by oracles, right? So that everybody at a bank is now just an oracle, just bringing like information on chain to feed the DeFi system. Uh, yeah, that would be a that'd be a weird kind of outtake, but I don't think that's what's going to happen. I think that they'll be consolidated in some efficient areas, and we'll find ways to get this information on chain. And I think at the end of the day, when you bring in such large efficiency improvements, the customers are going to win. Everyone who goes to a doctor or a lawyer is going to be better off. Everyone, every estate planner, everyone who's you know not who's died, but family of people who've died, now it's on chain, and now you can see that forever. 
Look, look, the, the reason why I think crypto is going to win, if, I don't know if you're, you're in Ontario. When I was in, so I'm in Vancouver and I think Uber only got approved in 20, I want to say 17, 2018. So a combination of the taxi drivers union, city hall, horrible incentive structures, there was a couple swing ridings and some provincial votes that were heavily like taxi supportive, essentially blocked Uber from coming in. But every single person who'd ever been in an Uber was like, this is better than a taxi. I get a better experience at a lower cost. And I'm ignoring the fact that Uber loses money hand over fist as an entity. But regardless, the service model, everybody is proposes. And so at the end of the day, it's a no brainer. You just say like, it's only a matter of time. They will fight us tooth and nail because they have a, a pigeonhole on the ecosystem. They have the monopoly. They've been running it for years and they're not going to give that up. And that's that's their business. But when you start using both products and you realize which one is providing you a better service at a better return or rate and is way more accessible, you'll you get a gut feeling. You're like, this is inevitable. This is just, I mean, it's just going to happen. So, you know, you can you can join us, you can not join us totally. It's really kind of doesn't make a difference what side people pick because at the end of the day, people are, you know, DeFi is a prime example. People are going to pick a savings account that gives them a 4% yield over one that gives them a 0.5% yield, period. Right. And you look at the project that the projects that, um, uh, not Ave, well, Ave, but, um, uh, MakerDAO is doing, you know, with institutions to, to give kind of institutions, access to DeFi markets so that they can provide a better rate of return than their competitors. It's like, yeah, but they're doing that because they're able to cut out, you know, a whole bunch of inefficiencies. And by inefficiencies, to be frank, I mean jobs uh, that, you know, are not required because the chain is, uh, is, is doing the work for them. So I, I think that the technology is there. I don't know what exact form it takes. I don't know exactly what regulation it will eventually end up with. But when I use DeFi, I or I use crypto or I send a transaction on Bitcoin, I get the same feeling I had when I got into Uber once and I was like, well, taxis are dead. Like it's just like this, you know, within 10 minutes, you're like like Uber pulls up, you get in, you don't have to pay anybody. You're like, oh, this is a way better system. Let's let's do it. And I get the same thing. And by that's one of the things I really like about teaching my course is that when I send people a transaction, I'm like, yeah, I'm going to send you. So we do a little five buck transaction to people so they can receive it. And I see it and I'm like, okay, I'm going to send it to you. Ready? And I press send and then it shows up and I'm like, that's it. And that cost me, you know, less than a penny. And they're just like, oh, like, it'll, like you see the light bulbs go on. They're like, oh, this is, and I'm like, okay, send it back to me now or send it here. And and you can see the light bulbs go on it and people just realize that this is not, it's not just kind of like a Ponzi scheme. I think everyone involved in crypto has the same mentality that it's a matter of when, not if, because of those efficiencies and because we've all had that light bulb moment. Now, I think that's a great sort of time to transition and I want to be respectful of your time. So we'll get into the rapid fire questions and then, and then I'll ask you before a couple. I, before, actually one thought, one thought before I pop into that. So I think it's inevitable. I think that the culture around it is very important. And I do want to point out, you know, people like Ross, people like Gabriel, uh, who have been real inspirations for me in the, in the 
crypto space and in terms of lawyering and doing crypto, I think it's really important that we don't, for lack of a better word, bow to the traditional markets and that lawyers and developers and builders in this space provide services to clients, but we do it with a mind that of what the culture is and what kind of the values are behind cryptocurrency. The values are is that we have to be, we should be in control of our own financial fate. And we should be able to access markets without gatekeepers. And we should be able to access uncensored, you know, I should be able to send money to whoever I want around the world. You know, that is, that's the philosophy. And I think that we need to be working towards those aims within the existing legal frameworks where we can, but we need to fight against the closing down of those. I, I don't want to see crypto boxed into just being a replacement to the traditional markets. I don't want there to be gatekeepers. And if Uniswap or Aave or whatever become those gatekeepers, then we need to replace them too. So it's, you know, I think not that they are, it's not an accusation on Uniswap, uh, but uh, um I think that it's important that we instill those values in lawyers and professionals that we're working with is that like, there is some punk rock to this, right? This is like, there is some kind of fight the man, you know, fuck the system. There is some of that here. And we need to kind of keep that in it because it's really what makes it exciting. And it's what drives the creativity. When you talk to people in Telegram about what they're building, they're telling you like, I want to do this because I want to make this system obsolete. I want it to be better for people. I want people to have access to services they never would have access to because who could think about living in, you know, a third world country and be able to do wills without having to go see a lawyer without, you know, it gives people, people talk about access to justice. And my idea is that my belief is cryptocurrencies, digital assets allow access to finance in the same kind of way that we talk about access to justice. We talk about access to justice, about how you can't really represent yourself if you don't have a good lawyer an expensive lawyer, and we talk, and we and we don't want to break that down. And we talk about access to finance. We're talking about the same thing. I shouldn't have to go through three brokers to to get a rate that then a corporation is going to get a better rate than me at, right? Like there's, it's the same kind of thing. Access to you know all of those things are really important components of how we build the system out. We need to make sure lawyers are working in that direction. Thank you for saying Sorry. that. I th- it's my no, I th- rant. Thank you. I think that's a, a really important point. And, and maybe I'll take a snippet of that and that'll be the promo for the episode because I thought that was great. Uh, and I think it is something that's so important to keep in mind. What's impressed me most since becoming like diving deep into crypto is almost the, the absence of greed in terms of building products. People are airdropping tokens for free. You see NFTs release for $5 that later resell for hundreds of thousands, even millions in the case of CryptoPunks. And then you see hacks and then, you know, I, I forget what it, the name of it, but $600 million, I think it was Poly uh, that got hacked a couple of weeks ago. And it was almost all returned. And so that ethos and that mindset is so important because that's going to bring the the technology forward and that's really going to empower people to make the most of what really I think is one of the most tremendous opportunities in history to give people more autonomy and more um, more rights really. Well, people have been, I mean, I'm, like I said, I'm not a developer I, in the world of crypto. I'm a nobody. And uh, you're somebody, Jeff, good, good named, good. Well, Big named people have spent, have given me more time than I would have ever imagined. And, you know, I think, you know, law is a great counterexample of 
historically, and I do think this is changing. It's certainly not the case where I practice now. It's certainly not the case in most of the places that I practiced. You know, if you went up to talk to the super senior partner, you'd feel like you're impeding. You'd feel like you're, you know, he was rushing you out of the office or he didn't, they didn't have time because they're working on stuff that's more important. And, you know, I see every day on Discord and Telegram, super good developers, super senior people talking to essentially, you know, just people coming into the space, newbies, whatever it is, and giving them real advice and giving them like real, like, oh, let me help you with that. What a cool idea. It's, it's like a, it's a phenomenal place. It's a, like, I can't get over how phenomenal the community is and how phenomenal kind of how kind people are with their time here and how committed they are to building their vision. And they just not going to let things stop them. It's something I was bullish on. And then once I got into it and started talking to Ross, people like yourself, Colin Specton as well, you just become more bullish because you say, okay, if everyone's here and they're super smart and they're working together, <laughs> yeah. you know, watch out. They're the Avengers. And that's why I put in the who's who of crypto law Twitter. It was the Avengers. Cause I think, you know, this is this group of people will really be moving the industry forward. And I think it's something that the world will be better off with. Yeah. hundred percent. All right, let's, we'll get into the rapid fire questions and then, uh, and then we'll thank you for your time. So the first is what advice did you wish you knew before entering your legal career? Or if you could go back to say when you were just graduating law school or maybe even before law school, what would you tell maybe 22 year old Jeff or 23 year old Jeff? Okay. Um, best advice for junior lawyers is find your niche. So everybody has things that they're really passionate about, right? And maybe it's crypto, maybe it's music, maybe it's whatever. Um, but in order to become an expert quickly, you need to find a niche that you know more about than anybody else does at the outset. You can't come in as a first-year lawyer and be an expert in commercial transactions. You just can't. But you can come in as a first-year lawyer and be an expert in crypto in your, within your firm. You can come in as a lawyer and be an expert in music, right, in, you know, in whatever your passion is. So the faster, you know, I see a lot of people who, who come in and they say like, oh, I'm, I'm going to become like a really, really good, uh, do commercial transactions or do, you know, do securities law, help companies go public. But what's your edge, right? Because you're always going to be able to have less experience doing that than the, the senior lawyer who's been there for their whole life, right? Who's been there for 20 years and you will never be able to surpass them. But by finding your niche, even if it only makes up 10% of your practice, 5% of your practice, but having your niche tied up in a, uh, your identity tied up in kind of, this is my edge against the senior guys in my firm that I know more about than they do. That actually is hugely valuable to the firm. And that is actually hugely valuable to other people uh, in the industry. And it sets you apart by saying like, I'm really passionate about this one thing. And maybe you only get one file a year that's based on that, but it sets you apart from the crowd. It gives you something you're passionate about and gives you something you want to work towards and want to become an expert. And then it kind of snowballs from there. So the biggest thing I could say is don't like be fearless about finding what your, bring your outside passions into your practice, make them kind of a niche area that you know more about than anybody else in your practice. And then don't be shy about selling that within your practice and to other lawyers. I think that's fantastic advice. I'm three weeks into my articling and to almost every lawyer I talk to, I mentioned that I'm really interested in crypto and blockchain and I've got work from it. 
you know, just because I've become known as the blockchain guy, even though there are lots of lawyers at the firm who practice and understand it. Well, I'm the one articling student who's raised his hand that he's really interested in this space. And just to, just to follow up on that one, Jeff, what advice would you give to people who say, okay, I, I'm really interested in crypto. I love crypto. I want to work in crypto and the law. Because if you're listening to this podcast, there's a good chance that you are. What would they? What would you recommend they do to gain either a better understanding or maybe should they learn to code? What are some things that you think will be valuable over the next five to 10 years as a lawyer in the crypto space? So learning to code is one that was is obviously huge. Uh, learning Solidity, learning Java. No, I don't know them. It's, it's on my to-do list. It's just life's a little busy right now. Um, but that's not going to be accessible for a lot of people who, you know, have a CPA or they've been doing X, Y, Z years, whatever it is in their field. And it's too, they feel like it's too late for them to go do a computer science degree and start from the basics. Totally get that. I think that what you've got to look at crypto as is a, it's a totally new landscape where there are going to need, it's like going to the, you know, you know, during the Western days, you know, going out to the, you know, out on the plains heading, heading West. It's like every town needs a butcher and needs a blacksmith and needs a horse guy and needs a bartender. And so every town needs a bit of every expertise. So whatever your niche is right now, whatever your expertise is, find a way to offer it to the community. And we've already talked about how the community is ridiculously receptive to new ideas, ridiculously helpful on everything. Get involved in the community, get involved in discords and telegrams and don't be shy and uh, offer that offer. Like this is my expertise. Hey, I, I know a lot about, I don't know what's, you know, um, I know a lot about farming, right? I know a whole bunch about, you know, I grew up on a farm. I know a whole bunch about farming. Here's some tools that like ways that farmers do calculations or, or track their crop growth that would be really cool to build out on chain and just do it. Like, like that's, that's the miracle as though those projects can happen like very organically. And it may seem like there's no, you know, immediate market fit for it. Um, but sometimes it takes one leap to get to a market fit. So like, Oh, that's, that's a really interesting project. I'm going to use it and now do it with my thing. So again, the best advice I can have is be courageous. Don't be shy. Lean into your, experience in the real world, whatever that is, whether you're a lawyer, developer, engineer, whatever it is, and then find a way to translate that and make it valuable to the crypto economy. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you don't need to completely understand how to tokenize a smart contract and build out, you know, your own coin. But if you understand almost like the internet in the 1990s, if you understand what it's all about and how this what the paradigm shift is going to be when this gets widespread adoption, you can make really smart decisions and position yourself in a way that'll be really helpful for you long-term. Last question for you, Jeff, what is one habit that has helped you be successful in your career? So this could be something such as docketing daily, but I think you'll have something better than that, but what's something that you've sort of implemented and that's really paid big dividends down the road? Oh, Habits are hard for me. Um, are there things you do routinely in your practice or, or just in your life in terms of career or even personal that, that I guess, you find valuable? I guess, the biggest thing, I guess the biggest thing for me is I love, I really like communicating with people who have different opinions than me. I've always loved that. 
I did, you know, some political work. And uh, that was always a weird thing for me is that I'd always like to sit down with the other side and have, I'd have better conversations with the people who disagreed with me than agreed. And I think that unfortunately, crypto Twitter and uh, a lot of the projects have this habit of like siloing people into like, this is my coin and I believe in it. And this is a good thing. And I don't. And I think the best thing you can do is expose yourself to one, expose yourself to new ideas as, as often as you can. But then more importantly, expose yourself to ideas that you think are wrong all the time. Um, you know, it, with maybe the exception of Cardano, you know, go out there and figure out what uh, what is, you know, what are the people are doing? Why is, you know, why do the Bitcoin people not like Ethereum, right? Why do the Ethereum people have, have skepticism of Bitcoin? Don't be either of those people. Um, you know, there's a, an unlimited number of kind of opinions and expertise and, uh, and, visions for how this whole thing plays out over the next decade, go and challenge your, your assumptions, go and challenge your kind of ideas. And that helps you one, get a better appreciation of, uh, you know, what the other side is thinking, even if you don't agree with it. I mean, one of the things when I was doing more litigation earlier on in my career, the best routine was not so much working on what my arguments were going to be and what kind of cases I was going to draw upon and, and how I'd spin it, but thinking about how the other lawyer was going to pitch their case, because I want to know, and that the more I can get in touch with being able to argue their side, the more I'm easily able to kind of tailor my side to hit their weaknesses and to kind of exploit the opportunities that they're likely to miss. So by being just focused on my path or my argument, my thing, you totally lose sight of what other people may be thinking about, what other arguments may be getting made that you're just oblivious to, right? So. Well, Jeff, I have to say, I, I knew you knew crypto, but uh, I was really, I learned a lot in this podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time today. It was a pleasure speaking with you. I mean, I, I think we almost went an hour and a half. That was, that was incredible. Thank you so much. Yeah, well, that's great. I'm happy to come back anytime, Jacob. It's a real pleasure. I'm, I'm glad you're building out this project on your podcast. It's really, really cool to have the legal people talking to each other. Before we sign off, is there any ask or thing you'd like to say to the audience or, or maybe you can let people know where they can get in touch with you? Sure. So Twitter's, uh, Twitter's usually the best place. Uh, it's at G Costello, uh, G C O S T E L O E. Put it we'll in the show notes so notes. that people don't spell it wrong because it's spelled funny. Um, DM me. I mean, if you're interested in estate planning on chain, you know, I have some plans for projects there. Um, I need, I need some technical help on building them out, you know, and I want to kind of, you know, make this infrastructure available to people uh, to open up the ability, you know, open it up to the most people we possibly can. Um, yeah. And I, other than that, I love helping people out. If you're somebody who has a lot of, you know, crypto money you've made, and you haven't paid taxes on, give me a call and we can talk about how, uh, what that process looks like. Even if you're not, you know, even if you're a U.S. citizen and, you're going to end up paying to the IRS. I can at least give you some advice on, on uh, how to think about that, who to talk to, what to do right away, what not to do. Just not necessarily legal advice, but just kind of practical advice for those situations. Um, yeah, but I, I'm always happy to chat to basically anybody who wants to talk to me. So, you know, reach out and don't be a stranger. Reach out. We'll leave everything that we spoke about in the show notes as well. So people can contact Jeff, read about his manifesto and see everything that's philosophy. going on. We're going state. with philosophy. Jacob. We're going I, like, with philosophy. I like manifesto, man. I like manifesto. Okay. So that's it. Thanks so much, Jeff. Perfect. Take care.